Hey everybody, it's Maddie C. Welcome back to the What Am I Making podcast. It's really great to have you here. It's part two of my chat with author and film producer Matt Berenson. Last time around, it was the secret stars of underground rock and roll. And this time, it's a look at the factory farms of the entertainment industry, the necessity of taking risks, and doing your best work later and later in your career. Let's get into it. Everybody, welcome back to the What Am I Making podcast. As always, it's really wonderful to have you here. My name is Maddie C. I am your host. Uh, what a great chat I have for you today. I hope you enjoyed the first part of my conversation with Matt Berenson that was in episode 20. Um, just a really fascinating talk about a whole bunch of stuff. And uh, it's no shortage of uh, more stuff like that today. A couple of things before we get into part two of my chat with Matt. Um, this show is powered exclusively by your financial support. So please sign up today for a paid subscription for as little as $6 a month. You can go to whatamimaking.substack.com. I do also have Venmo and PayPal options. Reach out to me at whatamimaking at substack.com or uh, hit me up on social media and let me know uh, if that's a, an option for you, if that's a way you'd rather support. A couple of folks have mentioned that. Uh, additionally, if you make purchases over at the Phonophore Records website, which is where you can find all the stuff from my bands, uh, the Stickarounds, Harbor Coat, and the Pantones, if you go to phonophorerecords.com slash shop, anything you buy there supports me, and it all supports my endeavors, and it's all kind of part of the same, uh, the same stew. My music and my Substack and my pod work, they're all, they're all kind of woven together, so please support it however you like and however you're able. Um, but uh, the more time that I can spend working on the pod, the Substack, and my music, uh, the more likely I am to be a happy person and probably give something back into the world that you might be interested in being a part of, as opposed to me going out and using my time to drive Uber or uh, work for somebody else. Not that there's not noble work in that. But anyway, um, if you like what I do and you want me to have a chance to do it more, I need your, your paid support. So please go over to whatamimaking.substack.com right now and sign up for a paid subscription if you haven't already. Uh, but instead of just begging, I also want to thank people who have already been supporting in just profound and amazing ways. Um, we are right now at 30 paid subscribers, which again, I want to make sure I say this. For somebody who's been doing this for like four months and a week, it is amazing to me that I have 30 people who are even paying attention, let alone giving me their paid support. Um, that is not lost on me. So thank you to those five people that I uh, am about to mention. But um, I I also I want to thank every single one of you just for, for hitting play and for listening. Um Sometimes I have to pinch myself that I get to do this. And even though um, I'm not really making a, a, a quantifiable amount of money, not enough money to live on anyway, um, the fact that I get to do this and that I have, have set aside this, uh, this work for virtually every day 
And as you can see from from the stuff that I'm kicking out, I mean, I'm doing stuff all the time. Um, so I'm able right now to put a lot of time in, and I want it to stay that way. But it means so much to me that you're here, that you're listening, that you're responding, that you're commenting and sharing and talking to me. Um, please continue to do that. That support is incredible. Whether you can support with your dollars or not, the more that you can share this and get it out into the world makes an enormous difference. And boy, does it sure make me believe that this is work that is worth doing. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, here are my five uh, paid subscribers this week that I want to I say thank you to. Uh, they are uh, Karen Madison, um, guest, uh, one-time guest and hopeful future guest, uh, comedian and new music for Olds writer Christian Finnegan, um, Jason Roy, Luann Hall, and Carlo Sergo, a.k.a. Carlo from Canada. Thank you so much to the five of you for your paid subscriptions. It means the world to me. I really, really appreciate it, and I cannot do this work without those paid subscriptions. So please make sure that you're doing that um, if you're able to. Uh, hang on one second for a coffee break. Mm. Also super helpful if you can like, rate, and review the pod wherever you listen. We had a nice little run early on of some folks who got out and reviewed and were very kind, and uh, we had some good ratings, and then it stopped. So I need to, to do another push. This is especially important if you're listening either in Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. This is crucial. This is the this is the number one way that our podcast is going to get shown to other listeners of podcasts similar to this one without going out and paying for for advertising. And clearly, I'm not in a position right now to do that. So uh, if you would share this with friends, and if you would like, rate, and review it wherever you're listening to podcasts, that is an enormous, enormous help. Um, it's also incredible to me how few people it takes to turn a podcast into something that can be successful. Um, and there are differing definitions of what successful means. But um, in my case, for what I am shooting for, I'm not talking about a massive audience. So you can have an incredible influence in the number of people who can listen to this and whether or not this winds up being a sustainable thing just by giving me a few bucks a month and by telling a few friends. So if this means something to you, if that's all you have to do to keep this going, thank you so much. I digress. Um, make sure that you know that you can leave me a message over at speakpipe.com slash what am I making? I'm going to give that to you one more time. It's speakpipe, speak, S-P-E-A-K, pipe, P-I-P-E, speakpipe.com slash what am I making, and it'll just use the default microphone in your computer, and you can leave me a voicemail, just like a good old-fashioned telephone message, and I can listen to it, maybe play it on the show, or I can reach back out to you directly, depending on what you need. This is actually how my buddy Paul Wesley got a hold of me to let me know that he had a space for me to host a show in Asheville, North Carolina, which is my way of telling you we've added a date. That's right, baby. I've actually added two. We've got two new dates on the calendar, so I'm going to run through these for you right now on the whole rundown for the summer tour that I've got starting uh, here in just a few days on June 29th. It's going to run from June 29th through July 15th. I'm going to go through all these dates really quickly. So please, if you're in any of these areas, pick up tickets. I've got two spots where I'm still waiting to fill 
uh, with a host. So if you know anybody or if you've got a space in any of these areas or along the route that I'm traveling, please reach out. Again, What Am I Making uh, has the, the voicemail thing. It's speakpipe.com slash what am I making. You can reach out over there or you can hit us on the socials or you can hit me at email. So here we go. You ready? And I'll, I'll, I'll flag the two new shows when I'm in there for you, just so you, uh, you know where they are. Here we go, real quick. June 29, Horrocks uh, in Lansing, Michigan. June 30, uh, Detroit. That's a house show. July 1st, a house show in Pittsburgh, PA. July 2, at the Slate Hill Edible Forest in Marcellus, New York. July 3, at Copper City Brewing in Rome, New York. July 5 at Eastworks in East Hampton. July 6 at the Fuller Building in Kingston, New York. July 7, a house concert in Harrisburg, PA. July 8 at Lost Rhino Brewing in Ashburn, Virginia. That's in the D.C. metro area. Also, that's going to be a live taping with the guys from the Rock in the Suburbs podcast. If you are in the D.C. area, this thing is going to be a hoot. Make sure you get out there. July 9, Tommy's Pub in Charlotte, North Carolina with my buddy Leisure McCorkle. July 10, this is a new show. My pal Paul Wesley, who I mentioned earlier, hooked me up with a show at a place called the Piano Emporium in Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, I've got a couple of uh, Asheville listeners, specifically France Pants, if you're out there. We found us a gig in Asheville finally. She's been trying to help me for weeks, and uh, we finally came through. So uh, I'll probably tell you off the air, but uh, in case you haven't heard, uh, I'm coming your way. July 11, I have a house show in Gainesville, Florida. Uh, July 12, I've got a house show in Knoxville, Tennessee. July 13, I still need a host, probably in Nashville. I could go as far as Memphis if you've got something else in Tennessee or even in uh, western or uh, southern Kentucky. Let's let's talk. Let's take a look. July 14, I'll be at Boyd Station in Cynthiana, uh, Kentucky, which is just outside of Lexington. And then July 15, I'm looking for a homebound show, probably in Indianapolis, Indiana, or maybe even uh, Cincinnati, Dayton, Chicago. There's a there's a whole string of cities across the northern part of those states right before you get into Michigan. There are lots of those that would work if you're in that stretch. You know, if you're in that I-80 route or just south of there, uh, let me know. Uh, I would love to talk. So, uh, again, you can hit me up at speakpipe.com slash what am I making, and you can go to uh, whatamimaking.substack.com, or you can send me an email at whatamimaking at substack.com. Now, enough of me shilling my tour and my stuff and my tickets and begging for your cash. Let's get to the reason you're here, my interview part two with our friend Matt Berenson. Now, last week, my guest Matt and I dove deep into the heroes in his book, Secret Stars, the greatest underdogs of the rock and roll era. And from Elliot Smith to Nick Drake to our beloved Guided by Voices, Matt and I spent almost an hour waxing poetic on the genius of these underappreciated icons. And in this episode, we take a turn and we look at Matt's career as a film producer. From his huge hit Daddy Daycare to his prestige work like Place Beyond the Pines, Berenson has seen the ups and downs of a very fickle, ever-changing industry. We talk about how he arrived at this point in his career and what it even takes to be a producer in the first place. Matt shares the necessity of risk-taking in entertainment and how it's becoming increasingly more difficult for artists, even who succeed, to participate in the financial success of their own work. The theme of our entire conversation, both this and the first part, 
seems to be buttoned up beautifully in the final chapter of our chat where we talk about the English songwriter Robin Hitchcock and revered American filmmaker Martin Scorsese. And we sort of hold them up as examples of artists who have continued to make great work late into their respective careers. Some might even say doing their best work right now. These are the filmmakers, writers, and musicians that seem to call out to Matt Barrons and to me as well. The most fascinating artists are the ones who never run out of new things to, to say to us and to tell us. And they're always striving for new ways to convey that message. Perhaps that is the secret to being a secret star. When I ended part one of my chat with Matt, I asked him, how does one even become a movie producer? And we took it from there. Enjoy. Ah, switching tracks to film. Well, look, I, um, it's, well, here's the thing. That's my, that's my second love. As I like to say in my house, we grew up Presbyterian. Our religion was cinema. Uh Um, and so that in many respects was that love was handed to me maybe earlier and more fundamentally than, than music was. And music was the thing that became mine first. Make mm-hmm. sense? Sure. So, absolutely. so, so in other words, for me to be genuine to myself and sit here and know what your past is and not ask you about it. Sure. Uh, that's a real dipshit move on my part. So, <laughs> no, I love it. And you did tell me, I remember now that you wanted to talk about film too. And I was like, Oh, cool. All right. I can definitely talk film all day uh, uh, for sure. So, you know, growing up, my love of film probably came from my mother. I mean, it sounds like you had a similar thing where just yeah. my mother there's nothing she enjoyed more than than uh, uh, going to the movies and and you know eating licorice or popcorn and you know, sitting there <laughs> watching a movie and uh, you know even into my adult life we would go just the two of us to to movies and oh. and um, uh, you know I had no idea how you became a film producer the way I got into it was. I had no idea what I wanted to do going into my senior year of college and was getting pretty anxious about it. And someone said to me, well, what are you passionate about? And I'm like, uh, music and film. And I guess, you know, storytelling more broadly, um, you know, than film. And he's like, well, here's my advice to you. You should at least try to do what you're passionate about first. And if you fail, then you can go to law school or you can do, you know, whatever. Um, wow. And, and, uh, this same person also said, which probably saved my ass. Um, and you shouldn't. And I said, you know, once I told him, you know, music and film, he's like, you probably shouldn't do music because you shouldn't have even gone to college. If you wanted to do music, you should have just started scouting bands and clubs around LA or, other, you know, maybe even other places, more far flung places instead of going to college and like discovered a band and brought them to a label and become an A&R guy that way. And, you know, uh, you don't, you don't need a college degree to, to, right. to work in the music industry, whereas you kind of do in film, actually. Um, I'm not sure why that is, except there's tons of reading in film. Uh, anybody who's oh. going to make a film has to read a lot of scripts and a lot of books and a lot of everything. So I started in the mailroom at a talent agency and I thought, oh, maybe I'll be an agent who represents writers and directors, like a literary agent. I knew I wouldn't represent actors. It would be like writers and directors. And then I saw that being an agent was really more about like 
It was about taste for sure and discovering people at film festivals and things like that that I would have enjoyed. But there was a big like love of deal making aspect of it. And I'm not really like, yeah, yeah, a little, a lot of schmoozing, a lot of deal making. You know, all you're doing all day is, 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 you know, getting your client, signing clients, getting them jobs, making deals. And I realized like, God, what, you know, that's not, I want to be on the more creative side of the business. What is that? And someone at the agency, at the William Morris agency at the time, it's now William Morris Endeavor, um, said, well, there's this thing called development. And I was like, you know, what, what's that? Well, that's the creative executives who work for producers and read scripts for them and do coverage, which is where you kind of break a script down for them and tell them what it is in two pages or less or whatever, three pages. It's like a synopsis with your comments on whether you think it's good or okay or bad or why and how it could be better. And, and then you, you work your way up and you realize like, Oh, that's how you become a creative producer. You start as a creative executive. And so I, I just worked my way up in the nineties working for different producers. uh, Once I realized that's what I wanted to do. And I got to work for some really cool people. I uh, uh, was at a company called Jersey films in the mid nineties, right after they had made Pulp Fiction and get shorty. Oh, wow. so, like in the industry, it was a very exciting place to work. I mean, Quentin Tarantino was coming in all the time, you know, uh, Scott Frank, who who um, had written Get Shorty and has gone on to do Queen's Gambit and, and is like a big writer director now. I mean, he was around all the time. There were all these amazing artists coming through. It was Danny DeVito's company with a guy named Michael Schamberg and a woman named Stacey Scher, uh, you know, who've done a, a ton of incredible movies between them. Um, and that was kind of my first big job in the business. Um, I'll, I'll never forget, you know, my final interview for that job to be their vice president was with Danny DeVito and just how nervous I was. I I had met a couple of stars before him, but now I was being interviewed one-on-one. And and how old are you at this point, Matt, when you're having this interview? I'm like 26. Okay. Uh, So still going into that Danny DeVito interview, like, yeah, very nervous, young 26 year old. And uh, you know, huge fan of Taxi, huge fan of his growing up, you know, wow. and it was just one of those, I need to be cool here. I need to just like, you know, how do I both kind of tell him I'm a fan without, you know, being weird and not and getting myself fired before I even get hired? Um, yeah. So it was just, you know, um, that was a really exciting couple of years. That's when I started going to film festivals regularly, Sundance, Toronto, um, and really knew that I was doing one of the things I was born to do, certainly, um, which was scouting talent, you know, at film festivals, and then and then learning the trade of producing. And it really kind of is a, it is a trade. Um, you know, it's, there's, most people don't know what a producer does and, and it's because there are a lot of different kinds of producers who do a lot of different things. Um, a creative producer is someone who finds material, whether it's a screenplay or a book or an article, puts it together with a screenwriter, develops a great script, then puts it together with a filmmaker. At some point you sell it to a studio and then you're, then you're kind of in the game and then you're trying to get your movie made. And, you know, once you have a great script with a director, you try to cast it. And if you're able to cast it at the level the studio or financier wants, you get to make a movie. And then, and then, uh, you know, there's, that's a whole other experience going on set and being part of that process of actually making the film. And then, you know, um, 
there's the post-production and marketing of the film, which is a whole other part of the process and learning all those things as you, as you work your way up. And as you start to make films, you're not good at all of them right away. You know, you, uh, well, it seems like learning. you would get sort of thrust into a thing for like a brief period of time and kind of be in that, in that tide system and then get sort of tossed back out. You know, so oh. you're into you're you're into the PR mode, and you're you're on a tour for two weeks, and you're doing morning shows and drive time radio and all that shit, and then, boom, you're back out again, and and now all of a sudden you're going, okay, where am I going to find the next thing? And if you're by yourself, it's got to be impossible to maintain that, right? One boy, that's interesting that you. I don't remember if we emailed it all about this or whatever, but I feel like somehow you just innately understand. Uh, uh, you have to be a risk taker to be in the entertainment industry. It is, it tests you constantly, you know, for every high there's 10 lows. Um, you know, it's, I've had some of the highest highs and lowest lows of my life, uh, in, in the movie business. I, I wouldn't trade it for anything, but my God, (laughs) um, during the Great Recession, I almost completely washed out of the business. I mean, it was wow. really tough. Um, and I was very lucky to a combination of relationships and luck. I, I landed one of the best jobs I ever had in the business running a guy named Sidney Kimmel's company. He's a, a billionaire from the clothing industry who started financing films and wanted to make like, you know, Academy Award type films. And I got oh, to wow. make Place Beyond the Pines with Bradley Cooper and Ryan Gosling when I was there. I bought the movie that became Hell or High Water um, that ended up being for Best Picture while I was there. And it just completely changed my career. It got me out of, I had made exclusively comedy up to that point. And so I was able to kind of shift gears and it really saved me and also kind of lit the flame, you know, all all over again. But yeah, and then you, you know, then one thing leads to another, you're, you're, you know, the, the, he, you, you, you find yourself out, you know, it's like musical chairs, you know, sometimes there's a chair for you, sometimes there isn't, you know, and when you're out, you have to make it happen on your own. My, my first successful movie, Daddy Daycare with Eddie Murphy, I was unemployed when I got that movie going. You know, I was I, now I look at it now and I'm like, oh, I wasn't unemployed. I was an independent producer. That's what people mean when they say independent producer. You don't have a paycheck and you you kill what you, you, you eat, what you kill. You know, so boy, are you, you know, your hunting instincts uh, are sharpened uh, during those times when it's like, and you're out on the movie going, you know, and I was newly married. I was, you know, very scary, very scary time. Uh, My wife was pregnant. Oh, man. (laughs) You know, I better get a movie going. Um, And daddy daycare saved my, saved my career and my my Uh, life. That's, uh, that's a pretty big home run. I mean, that's a, in terms of financial security, like that's a, you know, that's a really nice, you know, I mean, those, those sorts of results don't happen a lot in any creative industry, right? You're you're absolutely right. And there was a, you know, it's a crazy story because it, it was obviously incredibly lucky in one respect in that, you know, it was the first movie I had a full producer credit on and it grossed a hundred million dollars. The bad news of that for me is when you're making your first movie that you really hatched and developed and put together, your deal isn't as good. <laughs> so, so I'm not saying I didn't, I did fine and I got to make a sequel to it and, you know, I'm not complaining, but right. you make that movie, you know, as your fifth or eighth movie, right. your deal's 
twice as good. And then you're really fine. Um, but it it saved my ass at a time my ass needed saving. So I am eternally grateful uh, to that movie and to Eddie for doing it. And to, you know, but but there's an example of, you know, I was on the phone with a screenwriter in New York. I'm in L.A. He's in New York. He's married with two kids and a third one on the way. He's sold a bunch of scripts, but nothing has gotten made yet. He says, Matt, if I don't get a movie made soon, I'm going to have to start a daycare center out of my house. And we were both quiet. And I said, Daddy, daycare. And he said, you're going to make me write that, aren't you? Oh, my God. (laughs) That's how that movie happened. (laughs) Nine months later, nine months after that phone conversation, I was on the set. That's an ironic amount of time. Yeah, yeah. By the way, good, good point. Yes. And uh, my first child, uh, Leo, who uh, was born the year that movie came out. And uh, uh, we brought him as a baby to the premiere, the daytime premiere, because it was, you know, a family film, children's film. We like my wife had him strapped to her like oh at, the, at, the, at the after party of that. I mean, how crazy is that? And so is it really are you serious when you say it was nine months from that phone call to being on set? Nine months. It's the that, fastest I've ever gotten a movie made in my life. The movie, I just wrapped a movie here. Now I'll take you to the other end of my career. I've got a movie coming out either later this year or next year called Psycho Killer by the writer of Seven, Andy Kevin Walker. Incredible script. Georgina Campbell stars in it, um, uh, who starred in Barbarian last year. Um, by the way, uh, you heard it here first. The movie hasn't been announced yet. Nothing. So you're the I oh wow! Talking about it, but it's thanks it's, for the scoop, Matt. Yeah, it's kind of big scoop, big scoop, big scoop. Um, That's yes. what we're known for here at What Am I Making? Is <laughs> I tell my personal stories of struggles with mental illness and how to be an independent creator, and scooping movies that nobody knew were going to be a thing. <laughs> yes, so that was the opposite. Nine months to get Daddy Daycare made, right from the time I hatched that. I didn't even hatch Psycho Killer. It was a script with a different director on it, different producers that had been around for three or four or five years before ever I ever got involved with it. And it took me eight or nine years to get it made oh with my the God. help of a lot of people. I mean, it took, which is strange because it's a horror film. It's an R-rated horror thriller. You know, it's the kind of movie that's been doing well and been doing well for a while now. I don't know why somebody didn't make this movie five years ago. Okay. But we finally found the right company, New Regency. Um, a guy named Michael Schaefer over there, an executive who who couldn't believe he was like, are you pranking me? Like, why is no one else making this movie? And I was like, this is what I've been waiting, you know, what I've been waiting for someone to say, you know, all these years. It's like, why doesn't everyone get why this is cool? Okay, so let me let me dovetail that into what is probably a question that you get way too much, which is how much of this is the Marvel effect? Mm. I don't get that question way too much, but it's a good it's a very good question. Look, I don't think Marvel is entirely to blame. If we if we go back to our own childhoods, or let's say mine, I think I'm a little older than you. I'm not sure. We're 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 in the same zone, perhaps. Uh, um, I'm fifty five. I'm I just turned fifty one. Okay, well there you go. I knew I knew I had a few years. Close on. enough for punk rock. 
So I'm old enough that I saw Jaws in the theater in 1975 when I was seven years old, scared okay. the shit out of me. That, that's, that's one of those formative experiences that that's why I'm making Psycho Killer, you know, 40 years later or whatever it is, almost 50 years later. That's why I'm uh, uh, in the movie business, partly, you know, having a, an experience like affect you that way at that age, you know, and seeing things like, you know, well, so, so, but to the, to my point, and I'm sure you've heard this before, but it's like really Jaws and Star Wars were the beginning of the movie business, uh, the marvelization of the movie business, for lack of a better the quote word. unquote blockbuster era. The blockbuster. Yeah. They, they, there was no such thing. There were hit movies, of course, before that. The, you know, The Godfather was a hit, but it's hardly a blockbuster in the way that people think of it now. It's, and it's not even that every film lover on earth hasn't seen it over time. So it is a, even a blockbuster in terms of its success over time. Anyone who loves film has seen that movie, but but it's like a movie coming out in the theaters and just staying in the theaters for months and months and lines around the block and all that stuff was a new thing with Jaws and Star Wars. And it just escalated through the 80s. And then um, I feel like um, the kind of films I love came back in the 90s. The 90s was like, for me, like kind of the third golden age of cinema. You know, people always talk about like the 70s is kind of the second golden age. And for yeah. me, I just think the 90s, there were all these incredible filmmakers, the Coen brothers and Quentin Tarantino and, and um, oh, it was the, you know, uh, Wes Anderson started in the, the 90s, Paul Thomas Anderson. Al Hartley. Um, yeah. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. Now, now, now you're going, you're going uh secret star with it, with it, with Al Hartley. Yeah, but I, um, I'm talking about guys who, you know, filmmakers who, who uh, have, oh. know, won best picture and have, you know, who, but, but who are, um, not make, who are uh, not, um, uh, marvelized or, or Jaws or Star Wars. Catherine you know, Bigelow. Or, um, yeah, trying to look, think of, uh, there was another one that was not, it doesn't matter go ahead yeah yeah but but certainly look you know i love jaws i love star wars i love a lot of jim cameron movies and and you know but the, jim cameron was the next escalation by the way of the sort of blockbuster filmmaker and that thing and you know and then you get to to fil filmmakers who are less my cup of dirt like michael bay or whatever who just you right. know you know makes it just each of the guy knows how to make a blockbuster, you know, and, and Transformers, that franchise wouldn't be what it is without a director like that, who just knows how to blow that idea out, you know, as big as you can go and make it a, a you know, a global event. Um, and, you know, but that's not why I got into the movie business. Those weren't the kind of movies I wanted to make. So I would say that I don't think I've been marginalized by those kind of movies and the popularity of those movies going to say I marginalize myself, but that's not exactly right either. I, I guess what I wonder, man, and I don't sure. mean to cut you off or sort of like yeah. lead you in a different direction, but like, I kind of wonder, we've sort of hit this weird um, kind of overlap where we've got mm -hmm. this massive change in our delivery system, mm -hmm. like way more massive, I think, than, than TV or home video. I think it's analogous, but I think it's more severe than either one of those examples. And You've also got this sort of like, for lack of a better term, regurgitative model where we're just yeah. going to keep making and remaking things from the same the same source. Now, we've always Jordan done that, right? Like, like how many versions of A Star is Born in Ten Commandments do we have? Like we got 20, yeah. of them, you know, but, um, you know, now we're seeing where like you've got, you know, the third iteration of Spider-Man films coming out 
you know, that have been made not just in my lifetime, but like since I hit adulthood. Right. There, there have been like nine or 10 Spider-Man movies in our adult life. Right. And what's amazing is that the fans like each one more than the next. Yeah. These animated ones who, who are made by two super talented guys who, who uh, have a, have a, an incredible story, actually. Um, I used to know them a little bit and, and I remember them telling me the only kind of movies we're interested in making are ones where, if you pitch it to us, we go, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. <laughs> and then they have to figure out how to make it great. Oh, so wow. they did Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. They did 21 Jump Street. They did the Lego movie. So it's like, literally, oh it's like, how do you turn Legos into a movie? And they did it. You know, I mean, and they did it well. Like, that's a fun movie. Oh, people you know? loved it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it is fun. I mean, I took my kids. Yeah. So they're really incredible people working in that space that's not necessarily my space but but it's you know and 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 James Gunn who I know who's who's a uh, you know who 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 does the um, Guardians of the Galaxy movies and done you know he started off doing a remake of Dawn of the Dead that was super freaking cool and 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 working his way up and ultimately um uh you know and and now he's in you know Marvel's very clever they pull these interesting filmmakers into their universe which is part of why those a lot of their movies don't suck. And in fact, some of them are, are, are very good. But look, the combo, the combination of going back to those wells too many times, the streaming era, and then the pandemic, you know, boy, does that make the life of an independent producer difficult? <laughs> you know, if uh, uh, very, very challenging time, but you know, I, I and I'm always kind of curious because I have to look at it from the perspective of a musician. Mm-hmm. And I'm a musician who did not sort of cut my teeth in the era of digital streaming. I had to deal with it as a sort of long in the tooth vet and yep. somebody who wasn't doing this as a primary vocation. I was doing it as essentially a hobby that paid for itself. Mm-hmm. And so like, as my life has changed and as that economy has changed, I've had to become more engaged in it. And it's made me really curious, not only because I think it's a, a fundamentally a labor issue, what Spotify and Apple pay. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. curious um, are you seeing sort of, I mean, obviously we're dealing with the writer strike right now. Um, but are you also seeing that in the film industry where there are these issues with the way that streaming payouts work and that is essentially choking off funding and sort of ruining me. So that's sort of yeah. my concern with the sort of like the, all of these resources being funneled to the top of the pyramid. Yes. You know, it's not that, it's not that I don't want those movies to exist or that I don't, that that I'm sort of offended that they keep making the same thing over and over again. I'm puzzled by it. What I worry about is, is there isn't going to be enough at the bottom for, and this is the first person that comes to the top of my head. I want to make sure I don't live in a world where Kelly Reichardt can make films and she doesn't get to. Yes. Well, so, okay. I, I am a huge Kelly Reichardt fan, so I'm with you on that, but let me just tell you, you're really onto something here. You're exactly right. The streaming problem is the same problem in music and in film. Artists are getting squeezed by management. Labor is getting squeezed by management in both. Shocking, isn't it? In in both (laughs) worlds. It's why the writers are on strike in film now and why the actors are about to go on strike and shut down the entire film and, you know, the entire entertainment industry. I pray that that the actors do go on strike because if they do, 
management's going to have to come to the table. They'll have no choice because the other, or, or they'll have to choose a different business. Corporations can go just do something else, and other people will finance. And many of these, and many of these companies that are sort of the big players are, as we said earlier, we got lots. You know, you and I have to have fingers in lots of pies. So do they. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And and so it's it's, you know, it's unbelievable how many talented people are getting ripped off. Uh, you know. Uh, because of, uh, you know, Spotify and Netflix and all that. And it's not, you know, look, I don't want to talk myself out of the Netflix business. I'd love to make a movie for Netflix. Of but, course. Um, uh, however, what I also know is that if I made a movie for Netflix and 100 million people in the world watched it, I would just have my producing fee and they do something, they sort of, buy out your producing fee where you get a little premium on your producing fee going in in exchange for no upside in success. So you're not incentivized to make the best, most commercial movie possible. I would always want to do that anyway, but it's like they don't, you don't participate in the success of the film or the success of an album anymore as, as, as an artist. I mean, obviously if you're putting out a new album now and it's, you know, it's all touring revenues, as you know. It's like it's, well, the, it's yeah, the market's upside no- down. I mean, I wrote a thing recently about the first Cars record. Yeah, you know, that record comes out in 1977. They're playing every bowling alley they can get to for 450. Yeah. You know, and the whole idea is we're just going to keep doing this so we can keep selling records. And yep. selling millions and millions of records. Well, now you don't sell any records. You give the records away, and you yep. go out and you charge. You know what people think is too much money now to go see a show. Right. Right. uh, Because that money's got to come from somewhere. And when you're not paying for the music, you've got to pay for that a different way. And what I get concerned about both as a musician and as a fan is I don't want to de-incentivize somebody from making more records. Yep. Right. It's, it's awful. It's, it's something, you know, it's, uh, Look, it's there are a lot of these conversations being had, as 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 we both know. But there are so many reasons why it's bad for you know all art forms. It's just it's like they've, there's got to be a way to profit share that makes sense for the corporations and incentivizes the artists to to work and to yeah. do their best work and to try to you know. Uh, be as successful as possible, make the best version of what they're making to really pour themselves into something 110%, which is hard to do when you know you're not going to participate in the success of it. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I don't, I won't go down the rabbit hole, but I heard a story recently about like an egregiously low, low amount of money, like tens of thousands of dollars that the woman who wrote three episodes of Bridgerton received. Like for, oh, yeah. for three full episodes, she got like, I don't remember what the 50 or 60 grand. It was, it was less than a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. According to this story that I read, I was it's, just, I was like, what? That's like the biggest show in the world right now. It's, it's, it's crazy. Look, um, the creator of the show, part of what it is, is it for Netflix is that their model is to pay the creators of big shows like that give them these massive overall deals. So Shonda Rhimes, who's the creator of that show, I believe, or no, no, it's a Ryan Murphy. It's Ryan. Maybe that's a Ryan Murphy. I can't remember. I don't know. They have Ryan Murphy and Shonda Rhimes over there. They made like, you know, hundred million dollar deals with both. Oh, yeah. of them. And then, but what they say is 
Well, because we're paying you all that money now, you now you got to squeeze your writers. You got to like, you know, basically like everybody who's working on your series with you has got to make half what they would have been making 10 years ago. Like not an, like almost like not enough to support, certainly not enough to support a family. Well, it doesn't that then create an environment where basically they're just, they're putting together these like factory farms where they're just churning out content. And so you basically have these brand name people. And I'm not saying that you know, necessarily these two folks that you've mentioned, or, you know, somebody who else I can think of, like, like, like a Ryan Murphy, like a Tyler Perry, for example. And there are other sort of big producers who have these sort of big companies with several arms. Um, they make a fortune. I'm right. saying everyone below them, you know, gets right. What I'm saying is, so now you've basically got these corporations that are essentially going, all right, let's let the plebes go do all the work. And then these couple people at the top get all the revenue. Right. And what the plebes are hoping, you know, the carrot that's being dangled is if you're super, super talented, if you're as talented as Shonda Rhimes or Ryan Murphy, you'll eventually become one of them and then we'll give you a hundred million dollar deal. And it's like, there are only five of those people a generation, you know, it's this like is the, everybody this is else the needs same, to just make a living. This is the same bullshit concept behind trickle down economics. Yeah. It's just a yes. patent. It's a patent lie. Hundred percent. You you are promising me a reward (laughs) that we both know is never going to come. Yep. Yep. It never. You can get rich now. Yep. That's yeah. That's that's utter bullshit. Um. So it's happening in 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 every industry. It's brutal. I mean, you you know, I look. uh, I shouldn't be complaining in one respect, in the sense that the movie I mentioned earlier, Psycho Killer. If it does well, through a bizarre series of circumstances, I would participate in its success. You know, if I were on my own more on that film, my participation in its success would be very, very limited. But I tied wow. myself to I tied myself to a big film equivalent of a Shonda Rhimes type of person where, where I have a piece but Matt, of that. Even piece. then, what that tells me is that you have to play the game in a certain way to get lucky enough to pull off an inside straight like that. <laughs> so that if you do, on the off chance, have a film that's successful, which again, right. is fucking rare. Yes. Yes, it is. So if you do have the opportunity to do that, then you have to luck out again to actually participate in its success. So it's like, yes. it's like yeah. having to... It's like having to get drafted into the NBA, but not getting paid unless you wind up making it to the Hall of Fame. Yeah, yeah. It's that's that's a great great metaphor. Yep. You know. Um, so yeah. before we go, because I don't want to end on a big downer like that. That yeah, would be yeah, too, that gotta, would be too on brand for Maddie C. Uh, <laughs> give me give me something that like culturally speaking, whether it's a film or a book or a record. What is what is really like? What's lighting your fire right now? Ooh, ooh! Now you're now you're speaking my language. I guess I've already I've already plugged Joanna Samuels' album, which it's going to drive me crazy if I, you know, we might as well end on a music note. Let me let me yeah, let's end on a music of, note. And a I, couple of like newer. Let me let me see. Um. um so the Joanna Samuels album that's coming out is called Bystander. That's something that I'm I'm excited about. I haven't heard the whole thing, but I you know know from her last album Excelsior, it's going to be great. And, and that, first you said that's song. just coming out later this summer. That that's coming out in I, I want to say uh, next month. It's coming out in July. Okay. Yeah. Uh, maybe even 
at the end of this month. It might be like June 28th or something. It's very soon. So it's the right okay. time. Um, who else? Ooh, um, there's always, I'm such a just. Okay. Then I'm just going to, I'm going to fish a little bit. Uh, talk to me about your, whether or not you've listened to the new, new, uh, Yola Tango. Oh, interesting. I have, and I love Yola Tango. And I even love them all the way up to, you know, I would say like the last album of theirs I loved was probably, I don't know, two or two or three albums ago. It might've been that one called popular songs or I, uh, I, I can't remember. The one but, with the tape on the front of it. Uh, yeah, I think so. Yes. I think that's nice. right. I think that's popular. Nice. Songs. I, and, yeah. and I think there's a lot of like really enjoyable, catchy, like slightly more nineties style Yola Tango, mm-hmm. you know, songs on there. Um, as big a fan as I am of theirs, like I don't love their longer jammier stuff as much. And I, don't love their dronier, slightly more, of a, more uh, fake depressing voice. sounding uh, stuff. Yeah, yeah, a little. I mean, you know, there's a some of it I, I like that's sort of Velvet Underground-y. You know, well, there's a lot of theirs. You know, they're definitely in the Velvet Underground tradition. Sure, but, yeah. but the new album didn't grab me at first. If you're if you're loving it, uh, I'm I'm happy to be. I, I have I especially enjoy the opening track, and then well, I'm gonna have to pull this up. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but um, I'm really, really digging the the opening the opening track, and then the song that is like third or fourth on the record. Um, that's kind of I don't remember if they're calling it a single or whatever on uh, on streaming, but it's I I've really been enjoying it. I've listened to it maybe four or five times since it's come out, which hasn't been that long. So that's that's unusual for me that I would I would spin a brand new record that much. Um, yes, I, I, I agree. I listen to so much that for me to listen to a new album like five times, uh, yeah. it's, that means I'm really loving it. And so I guess I mean, this is this is pretty boring. Um, <laughs> but I but I do I have since it came out on Friday, I've listened to the Jason Isbell four times. Okay, um, my I wife went and bought it on vinyl on Saturday while I was gone. Um, and, uh, we haven't listened to it yet, but we'll probably spend it tonight. Yeah. There's, you know, it's a little too long. It's got 13 tracks on it. A couple of them, you know, uh, one of them's a little, um, slightly ham-fisted political kind of song, you know, right. like about a school shooting, you know, it's just like, Oh, I don't want to listen to that. You know, I like when he's writing more personal kind of stuff yeah. and there's a lot of incredible personal songs on it. Uh, like a really, um, like a rocker that's also really emotional on that album. He wrote a song for uh, Justin um, Towns Earl. Oh, yeah. Earl's son. It is beautifully written. A complete, it's just an absolute classic piece of songwriting and one of the oh. best tributes uh, to a kind of fallen here, you know, fallen friend. It's it's so personal and so it's... it's and I talk mean, about, I mean, Isbel's a dude who can turn a phrase with the oh, best of them. That He's song will kill really, you. It's, it's He's great. really, really good. Uh, you know, uh, as as a guy who's been, I mean, I only learned to play guitar because I, wa- I wanted to write songs. I didn't, yeah. I, I didn't want to be. I always say I didn't want to be Jimmy Page. I just wanted to be Peter Buck. You know, <laughs> um, and you know, thirty five years later, still trying. But um, oh, you you, you did great. <laughs> I've been checking out. I mean, ever since we booked this, I've listened to both your bands, and I'm really enjoying the most recent record, which is a real testament to like. Um, 
another theory I have. I'm liking your most recent album as much as almost anything else I've heard, which is to your credit. But I also think it's a phenomenon that sort of sometimes artists who have too much success too soon, which I know is not you know, a problem you maybe wish you you had, but it's like a then like they just make bad records for decades after that and they yeah. make fewer albums than they would have, you know, but artists who who are doing it just for the love of it. And yes, they hope to connect and yes, they hope to grow their touring, you know, sure. ability to play shows and stuff. But it's like often it's those artists where like the second half of their career, they're just getting better and better and they keep refining their craft and they keep, you know. Oh, OK. Um, so you want to talk about ending on a happy note. Let's yeah. let's <laughs> let's let's end on a happy note that's musically related. And that is the glory of Robin Hitchcock and you, my friend got me to focus on a couple of later period records that I really didn't know very well. Um, like his eponymous one, the one from 2017? That one I knew, and I love that record so much. Oh, good. I think Mad Shelley's Letterbox is one of the, I think that's one of the golden Hitchcock hits. So good. So uh, good. I love no, that um, um, What is it? The is it Ole Tarantula? Yes. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, and then speaking of Peter a, Buck, yeah, yeah, and there's another one in there too. And what's funny is I had seen Good the little, Oslo. Yeah. Yes, it's those two. Um, and I had seen the little doc that they had done in Nashville at yeah. at his house. Um, yep. Well, but, he was recording some of those songs. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So tell me about your relationship with Robin Hitchcock, and you know, like. Uh, I think that kind of I think that kind of folds in with some of the sort of mercurial people that are in the book, like, again, like Pollard or Nick Drake or Arthur Lee, who we haven't even talked about. But like, sure, Hitchcock feels like sort of a kind of a nice little amalgamation of all of those people. My journey with Robin Hitchcock is. Has been really interesting for me, to, to be honest, because he's a great example of, you know, it's not like. um anyone who loves music and who's super opinionated about it and their opinion is um, rooted in actual, a certain amount of expertise, either as a musician, which is not the case with me, or as just very fluent in the, you know, have heard everything, read everything, you know, I've, I've been a well-educated listener, a student of it, a well-educated listener. So, you know, there are plenty of examples I could give of where I just didn't like something the first time I heard it. Right. So Robin Hitchcock, great example. Like I, you know, I was in college when he became kind of a college rock darling with songs like balloon man and, you know, uh, man with the light bulb head and, and, you know, uh, um, which, you know, now I love all these songs, but it's like, and, and um, um, my wife and my dead wife, and I was just like, oh, he's kind of a novelty act. And I get yeah. he's sort of like Sid Barrett, but he's kind of a poppier Sid Barrett. And he's kind of writing these novelty songs. And I get that he has some talent, but uh, it's a little too cute for me. That's the way he feels about those songs now is the incredible thing I learned is I, you know, in the 90s was when I saw him live for the first time. And I was like, this guy's into Dylan. Like this guy's into stuff that I wouldn't have expected. Like, okay. And he's hilarious on stage, which I oh. maybe would have expected. I mean, he's so funny. He's such a great raconteur. And so then I started buying the records as they came out and just kept getting blown away by these songs that, like, no one knows, you know, that are better. That, not I don't want to say better. He has a lot of incredible songs in the 80s. He does. I'm just a, I'm a huge fan of pretty much, 
you know, almost everything now from from the Soft Boys Underwater Moonlight in 1980 to the present. There are great songs on all those records. Um, but it's like he just started making these records that where I feel like, you know, he did a double album of Dylan covers that that I actually don't particularly love. But it was records he made after he did that, when he went back to the well of what had inspired him. Um, and there's a great quote from him in my book about uh, how the song Visions of Johanna, who, by the way, that artist I've been pitching, uh, Joanna Samuels, was named after the song Visions oh, of Johanna. Oh, wow. Um, so her dad's a huge Dylan fan. Um, so, so, you know, he went back to the well and he listened to all of his favorite Dylan songs and recorded them. And then suddenly he started writing these songs that didn't, they weren't like ripping off Dylan. They were just filtering Dylan and all the other things he loved through his own sensibility, like we were talking about with Bowie and Prince and Pollard. And out came this kind of, you know, a, I don't know, just like a certain level of song. I feel like he just almost like started to transcend himself. And yet he was still Robin Hitchcock. It was still recognizably a Robin Hitchcock record. But like, there's just no way that like, it's, it was just better than Globe of Frogs, for lack of a better way of putting it, like his most commercial album or one of his most commercial albums. It was just like, oh, this is next level for him anyway, forgetting comparing him to anyone else. Like he's taken his own, he's raised his own game here. And look, it was partly he had Peter Buck in his band. You know, the, it was Robin Hitchcock and the Venus Three. I'm sure that, and they were good friends at the time. Apparently, they're not anymore, which is too bad. I don't, I don't talk about that in my book because it's. Um, I didn't know that. That's a shame. Not a happy topic, yeah, and the and the reason for it, which we could talk about offline, but um, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, kind of sad subject, but um, so you know, I just love. I th I really do believe if Hitchcock had ever had a giant hit or a, or a, certainly a platinum album, but maybe even a gold album, he never would have made it to where he got in the late '90s and 2000s, where he just started making, you know, what what I think are some of his most incredible records. And then, you know, in 2006, you know, 17 at the age of 60 or whatever he was, maybe 62 or three, to make that album that's first of all does not sound like an old man record it sounds like a young man's record in most cases and so there's some songs on it that i love that are more like looking back at his relationship but with there's his so much even that. those songs have so much energy yes yeah i mean you know he just you know in the 21st i i take his 21st century records over his 20th century records i mean it's kind of wow which is just kind of and nuts. that's incredible yeah. when when you look at kind of the era of those sort of that class of people. Like I just went, I just went to Cleveland on Sunday night to go see the cure, oh. you know, and it was a wonderful experience yep. and it was amazing. Uh, but that's a, that's a record who the last time I saw them was 31 years ago. <laughs> and that's also the last time I bought a cure record, Matt. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's very interesting. I am a huge cure fan. I never saw them live for reasons I can't fathom because like I was a really big fan in the eighties and nineties for sure. I was, I was right shocked there. not only at how good they sounded, but by how much fun they were having. Interesting. They were having a, his, uh, Robert Smith's, uh, sort of playful vocal delivery. Like he just was really kind of milking it and having fun. And he you can, can still sing well. He, I mean, he still, his he's, voice sounded as good as it ever has. That's I incredible. Think. 
I wow. thought I was really impressed. I, I might have to try to see this. I somewhere. just was really, really impressed. And it yeah, was one I of these deals like where I was... like, I don't, I don't want to go to big, this was like a giant outdoor amphitheater thing. We had lawn seats and I was like, I don't know, this is going to be, and it wound up just being a wonderful experience, even though it was Ooh. like just a torrential downpour. Like just, we oh, just, got, no uh, we, oh, we got soaked. It was a, it was a, I'll tell you about this later, but <laughs> just a disaster. Uh, but totally worth it to go see this band that I haven't, I haven't cared about anything new since I was barely old enough to drink. Yep. It's just, I'm with you there. They obviously, you know, had a pretty incredible run of records for me, starting with head on the door. You know, there's sort of like a run of four or five records there that are just incredible. And then uh, got a little wobbly and then it got more, and then the wheels came off and, and they knew it. And which is why, they haven't made a record for 15 years, but the right. weird thing is, is they've got two records in the can that are completely finished, 20 or 24 songs. And like, I got a real bad feeling about those records because they're just not releasing them. Like they've well, been done for, for like two yeah. years. And what's interesting is they've been playing some of that stuff on this tour. How is it? And well, I, there were only there were only two songs that I just definitively didn't recognize, uh-huh. and they were and they were cool. One okay. of them was like this kind of vampy intro thing that I don't even know if it's a song. Right, might have right. just been like kind of a reworking of another thing. Uh-huh. And then the other one was clearly like a formula. And I don't know if it's just on one of the newer records, and I don't know it, or if it's like an old hidden one that I'm just not quite hip enough to know. Right, they were cool. But it's always hard to tell that like in the middle of a show with other stuff that is like really, really lovely interpretations of songs you're really fond of, right? Yeah. Like how much am I coloring my experience? So it's, I, I can't be objective about it, you know? Yeah, I, I think the hunger is a big part of it for any artist. And like, once you don't have the hunger anymore, you should stop doing it. And I don't mean stop touring, but like, stop, you know, if, if you're not hungry, if you don't have something to say, if you don't you have, go. if you don't have, the the hunger is is a is a concept that I that, that means a lot of different things to me, but it's sort of that thing that when artists have it, you know it. <laughs> there's, you a, uh, it. there's an ambition. There's a drive. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, there's a there's are- a there's a great yeah. scene in uh, Sunset Boulevard where uh, William Holden goes to find his agent on the golf course, and he tries to borrow money from him, and his agent tells him that uh, writers do better work on an empty stomach. Yeah. You know, and that's sort of the old the old the old trope. Yeah. Yeah, it's like Coppola had it in the 70s and he didn't have it in the 80s and 90s. No. Orsese has never lost it. Right. Unbelievable. The guy has had the hunger and he's just one of those artists who no matter how much success he has, and he didn't have huge success till the 90s, oddly That's enough. That's true. That's he, true. He made a lot of very odd movies in um, the 80s. Are I mean, really, Goodfellas is his first like bona fide box office hit, right? There you go. It's from like Goodfellas to now. He's made all of his biggest hit movies, right. and he's made he made classic films before that, Raging Bull and Taxi Driver and sure. all these incredible things. But his biggest hit movies are all way later in his life, you know, from his fifties into his seventies. Well, and it's and interesting because I I think you can make has a, the hunger. I yeah. think you can make a case. Uh, not not you can make a case. I would make a case uh, that he that Goodfellas is his best film. And that, I, I'm and still that he, there with you, And that yeah. he made it in the middle of his career, and that that is not common. Yep, very uncommon. I and it's still my favorite film of his, but I do really like, you know, 
of his last five movies, I probably like four of them a lot. You know, it's not, he's not, he's doing very good work, you know, incrementally more commercially leaning than he was for a while there. Um, you know, I'm very excited to see the three and a half hour, maybe it's even four hour DiCaprio movie he's got you coming. You and me both. I out. love I mean, that I book. Oh, man. Wait. I haven't read the book. Oh, I'm the actually book so excited to see the movie because I haven't read the book. So I okay. only know, I know the basic, what, like basically what it's about. Yeah. But I don't know all of its secrets. You well, know, talk about tying it together. Uh, the aforementioned Jason Isbell is in that film. Oh, yes, that's right. As is uh, Sturgill Simpson, I believe. Oh, neat. Yeah. And, yeah. and Isbell's got like a, I, I've heard, I think he's got a pretty significant role in it. I, I think he's going to get to show off his chops. I think is he do you, as as a, as a dude who crosses this Venn diagram uh, in a wonderful way. Uh, I'll I'll speak to your expertise. Is he the new Dwight Yoakam? <laughs> That's funny. Oh, I love Dwight Yoakam and Sling Blade. Holy I shit, he's good. I saw Sling Blade at a film festival and was just like, whoa, that movie freaked me out. And and oh. um, Billy Bob and Dwight Yoakam in that movie, boy, is that a some tour de force shit. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, look, uh, I, I think he, he wants to be, but I, I'm an even bigger fan of his, like, I feel like Dwight Yoakam, I'm a fan of Dwight Yoakam, certainly like he, he was carving out a particular niche for himself. He was kind of ahead of the curve in a way on a whole category of, you know, almost alt, alt country, but not quite, you know, um, uh at at the time i'm i'm an admirer of him uh, of his music more than i am a fan whereas like isbel i'm just a massive fan from like the you know right from the the first drive by truckers record he was on through through to the present uh and yeah if he winds up having an acting career you know g- good for him you know he's a guy who's obviously doing very well but i i wish him like nothing but success oh, me too man um and that doc is that doc is amazing for anybody who hasn't seen it i don't I, yeah i just really i really really loved it matt thank you yeah. so much for doing this this was so much fun uh clearly uh this this needs to not be the last time that we do this on the record Oh yeah. I, this was fun for me too. I really appreciate you, um, uh, you know, uh, reading the book and, and, and supporting, uh, the work. And, uh, I guess we're, we're, we're mutual fans of of each other now. And so, yeah, let's, uh, you know, stay in touch and, and this has been a pleasure. Sounds awesome, man. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. that huh two excellent interviews one guest one sitting unbelievable thank you again to matt berenson for being here thank you to you for being here thank you for subscribing for listening for sharing for liking reviewing for rating for being a paid subscriber i hope uh remember phonophorecords.com slash shop is that right yeah phonophorecords.com slash shop you can buy t-shirts and cds and all kinds of fun stuff uh if you go over there and you use the uh slash house hyphen shows you can buy tickets to almost all of the house shows that i have scheduled right now i will have the Asheville and gainesville uh ticket links up there this week again get on there find out where i'm gonna be please buy a ticket please come by and say hello come meet me come talk to me I can't wait to see you all out there. Um, Leave me a message at speakpipe.com slash what am I making? 
I can feature your message on the show. You can give me ideas for who I might be able to talk to. Maybe give me a concept idea or a theme idea. Maybe you want to submit yourself for being on the show. Maybe you're making something amazing. I want to know, do you have like an incredible business? Do you have a band? Do you Are you making a film? Are you writing a novel? Are you a published author? Are you a motivational speaker? What are you doing? I want to know about it. Speakpipe.com slash what am I making? You can also find me on all of the socials. You, you know where to go. I'm, I'm in the stick arounds. I'm in Harbor Code. I used to be in the Pantones. I'm going on this massive summer house show tour that you're probably sick of hearing about. But the point is, I'm, I'm out there. I'm making stuff. And, and the best part is the people that I get to make it with and the, the people that I get to meet while I'm out there doing it. And the, the process of going through this house show thing has just been absolutely and completely incredible. I just cannot believe how amazing people are so thank you again to everybody thank you for your support your friendship everything it's incredible uh i will see you very very soon i'll have another episode up make sure you're over at uh what am i making i'm putting stuff up there every day i think it's really great work and i'd love for you to go check it out i'll see you soon Production of Mattis C and his ADHD.